you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Sermon on the Mount, specifically Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13 this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This section of Scripture is what we know as the Lord's Prayer. It might be in your copy of God's Word and the translation that you're using. You might see the model prayer. But we most specifically know this as a section of Scripture called the, the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you saw the Lord's Prayer was a little controversial a few years ago in the Church of England and in Great Britain. The Church of England took out a video ad for prayer and drawing people together in prayer. So they had groups to just recite the words of the Lord's Prayer. So you had different ethnicities, people from different walks of life, and this montage of people just praying the Lord's Prayer. It ended with the tagline, prayer is for everyone, and then an invitation to a Church of England website that was set up, justpray.uk. It was a coalition of movie theater owners in Great Britain that gathered together to boycott the showing of that advertisement in their theaters, lest it would be too offensive and too alienating to the moving-going crowd of Great Britain. I'm not telling you this story to make any type of social commentary upon the, the state of our culture. I think that was about 2017 when that occurred. I'm not telling you this to make any type of illustrative point in regard to what it says about society when we're hesitant to share the Lord's Prayer and that it becomes alienating. There, there's no damnation. There's no salvation uh, solely, exclusively in and through Jesus Christ. But these words that have so unified the church for years seem to be at times perceived as hate speech. That's, that's not why I'm sharing this with you. It's interesting, and the reason I want to share this with you is that as the Church of England was thinking of a way to draw people together to pray to God that they would have chosen these scriptural words. And it really isn't surprising. I don't know if there are any passages of scripture in all of the Bible that are more familiar to Christian and non-Christian alike than these words, these five verses that we know to be the Lord's Prayer. Throughout history, since the inception of Christianity, no words have been prayed in different languages more than the Lord's Prayer, different denominational traditions than the Lord's Prayer. Even today as we worship across time zones and continents, in different languages, ethnicities, what will unify the expression of worship, Protestant, Catholic, alike, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, will be in many of those worship contexts, the recitation of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said this about the Lord's Prayer. He said that prayer, this prayer, since our Lord is the author of this prayer, it is without a doubt the most sublime, the loftiest, and the most excellent prayer ever prayed. I don't want us just to take two weeks for us to pause and to ponder what the Lord's Prayer, this familiar passage in the Sermon on the Mount, what it teaches us first and foremost about God, and secondly, what it teaches us about how we are invited to commune with God in and through prayer. I want us to focus just on verse 9, actually not even the entirety of verse 9, but just the first section of verse 9, which reads in the English Standard Version, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Maybe you remember the Lord's Prayer from your King James memorization of it. And I want us just to hear it all in its entirety. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts and forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Three principles that I want you to hold on to as you examine the Lord's Prayer this morning. The first is I want us to notice the purpose of the Lord's Prayer. The purpose of the Lord's Prayer, looking at the beginning of verse 9, pray then like this. Pray then like this. You know, it is tempting to, to, to treat the Lord's Prayer as some sort of magic wand, rabbit's foot, good luck charm in athletic enterprises. Oftentimes before the team goes out on the field, the, the last thing that is done, everybody takes a knee and we pray the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes when you are getting to the end of the semester and we have some college students that are taking finals, before you go into the class, you say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or you have a big job interview, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And, and there, is a, there is a way that is important for us to say that the Lord's Prayer is not a magic incantation that if you pray these words so many times that God will become a genie in the bottle that will grant your every wish. Uh, of course, that's not the purpose of the Lord's Prayer. But I, but I do want to pause and just say that I am thankful that we have a prayer within Scripture that Jesus tells his disciples, this is how you should pray. And that when people are in a corner and they are in a difficulty, that oftentimes these familiar words will become the vocabulary of their prayer life. That is a good thing. That is a good thing. No, it's not a magic wand. No, it's not a magic incantation that if we pray enough that God is indebted to us. Of course not. But what we notice in the preceding verses, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, Jesus has contrasted how the Gentiles pray. He says, don't pray like this. They pray to be heard and to be seen. And they pray in these long ways to try to get the attention of the gods. So don't babble along in your prayers, but pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven. You can pray to your Father because he desires to hear you. You don't have to get his attention. You don't have to uh, pray in such a way like the prophets of Baal that beat on the door and beat on the door and beat on the door. But rather, you have a heavenly Father who knows your frailty, knows your difficulty, and wants to hear from you so you have the freedom to pray. It's a pattern. It is not a straitjacket in the sense that our prayer life should only have these words as we pray. We have even in the example of Jesus, him on the cross, praying words that are not the Lord's Prayer. In John chapter 17, he intercedes for the church, not the words of the Lord's Prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, it's not the Lord's Prayer. So it isn't that Jesus is saying, this is the only way that you can pray. No. But it is a pattern that we're able to trace the contours of what a healthy prayer life should be. And notice as you look at it from a 30,000-foot viewpoint that you discover that prayer for you and for me should be vertically oriented before it is horizontally focused. That we begin our prayer life not with, give us today our daily bread, forgive us of our trespasses. No, we begin our prayer in the model prayer by our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We begin with a vertical orientation, thanking him for who he is, asking not, his, not our will to be done, but his will to be done. We're hallowing his name, and it is then with that vertical orientation that we have a, a freedom to, to pray in a horizontal intercession. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. 
See, there is a temptation to get off on either side of the gutter of prayer, where, where prayer is only a Godward focus, and we think God is really, really busy, so he cannot have a concern for my daily needs. It's both and. Or God, we think, in prayer is nothing more than sort of a, a divine version of an Amazon wish list, and we only come to him with our needs and our wants and our desires. No, there is a sense in which healthy prayer is a vertical orientation to his will being done, uh, acknowledging our relationship to him. And then that shapes how we pray for our own life and those that are around us. There is a vertical and a horizontal that's embedded in any healthy prayer life that we see in the Lord's Prayer. We move away from this panoramic view of the Lord's Prayer and we focus in not only seeing the purpose of the Lord's Prayer, but we see, secondly this morning, a portrait of a praying community. Look in your copy of God's Word. What's that pronoun that starts the Lord's Prayer? Our. The most famous prayer in the Old Testament is, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord's my shepherd. Personal pronouns are in Scripture. Their personal pronouns are in our prayers. But notice that in the model prayer, in the Lord's prayer here, it begins with our, our, not I, me, my. Notice in the Lord's prayer, as you're looking at it right now in your copy of God's Word, how, how many personal pronouns do you see? They're all plural pronouns here. It's our Father, our daily bread, forgive our debts, lead us not, deliver us from evil. I, me, and mine is not present in the Lord's prayer. It is a reminder that your relationship with God is always a relationship with God that is intended to be expressed in a community called the church. That there's always to be an usness and an ourness to our relationship with God. That I, me, and mine is not the first emphasis of how we grow in our faith. We're not called to be isolated individuals with just me alone if, with my Bible. We're not called to that. There, there are over 50 instances of this two-word phrase called one another. Love one another. Forgive one another. Over 50 times in the New Testament, you have these admonitions to live in harmony with one another, bear one another's burdens. You have these different variations over 50 times that remind us of the usness of our faith, of the ourness of our faith. That when we pray, even when we pray privately, we pray from a community, for a community, on behalf of a community. The I, me, and mine that is such a temptation in our individualistic society is, is come against here in Jesus' first pronoun in the Lord's Prayer here. It's, it's attacked directly. Two Methodist theologians that taught at Duke for years, Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon, they said very aptly that there may be religions that come to you through quiet walks in the woods or by sitting quietly in the library with a book, or rummaging around in the recesses of your psyche. Christianity is not one of them. Christianity is inherently communal, a matter of life in the body, the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. He called a group of disciples. And our relationship with God can become out of balance when we lose the ourness and the usness and the we-ness of our faith and we replace it solely with I, me, and mine. 
Two famous theologians from the 1960s, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, said um, <laughs> that and they, they said, I've got my books. A Paul Simon song, I, I'm a, you remember the song, Rock, my, my, I've got my books. I've got my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor. I'm hiding in my room. I'm safe within the room. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. And there can be... Even, even when you come to worship, there, there can be a temptation to think solely about your faith in individualistic terms. And you only come to God in the sense of, I am an island, I am isolated, and my faith is my personal business, and I don't want to be connected to any kind of community. I don't want to be known. And what do you miss in that? You miss the one another aspect of your faith. You miss the our father of your faith when you solely express it with I, me, and mine. I oftentimes have people say to me, this sort of this hypothetical conjecture here, David, you understand that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And of course, hypothetically, that's true. But, but I'm here to remind you, although we receive faith individually, by trusting individually in the finished work of the gospel, there, that is true. You cannot be a healthy, growing Christian isolated. You can't. Although we might want that, although it might be less messy at times, the only way that we can forgive one another is to be in an our relationship, an us relationship. The only one way we can serve one another is that there is another that is connected to us and knows us. And so it's not enough just for us to be alone with our Bible in the woods. There is great communion that can occur in that kind of individualism. There's no doubt about it, but that's not enough. It's just not enough. It's one of these things I think about with, with corporate worship. Notice what I said, corporate worship. There is a place for individual worship. There is a place for, for in the, the context of your walk with the Lord where you individually praise Him and pray to Him. But we do that to feed into what we're doing here this morning, which is corporate worship. And, and what can occur is when the litmus test becomes I and me and mine as to the effectiveness of corporate worship. And so you'll say, you know, I didn't like, I didn't like those songs today. Those songs were not for me today. That prayer wasn't for me today. That sermon didn't speak to me today. And there's a sense in which, and I'll say this with love, uh, well, you've misunderstood worship. Worship is not us gathering together as isolated individuals saying, what can be the celebration of my personal preferences this morning? Worship is not the greatest hits of your Spotify collection that we come to sing. You understand that would be impossible for us to do. So worship always has to have, first and foremost, an us, we, and our component, especially in a church like Dawson, that we celebrate the vast diversity of ages and perspectives that are represented in all of our services. If we said we are going to create a worship service, that connects to the I and the me and the mine individualistically of every person, we would be paralyzed. What has to be the, the primacy of the goal is the corporate nature of the our, the we, and the us. So there are times in any worship service that you say, you know something, this probably is not my favorite expression of a prayer or favorite expression of a song, but guess what? It's bigger than me. It's about the us and the we. 
not the me and the mine. Oh yeah, you know, he's, he's given an illustration here of Simon and Garfunkel. Well, I'm going to assure you that no one knows what I'm talking about that is of a certain age here. But what do we do here? We're talking about us and we. There's no way that we can create a worship experience that connects to every I in this room. But guess what? Every I in this room is a part of a greater we and us and our. So we pray our Father in heaven. Uh, We look not only in, number two, a portrait of a praying community, but thirdly here this morning, we see a portrait of our God. Just by looking at these first words of the Lord's Prayer. A portrait of our God, our Father which art in heaven. Notice as theologians for over 2,000 years have talked about the imminence of God and the transcendence of God that is explicitly connected in the testimony, not only of the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, most clearly seen in the phrase here of the Lord's Prayer. We pray our Father in heaven. So God is holy other. He's in heaven. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. Omniscient, all-knowing. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He's not first and foremost our buddy. He's not first and foremost our, our protector or our king. All of those things are true, but we pray our Father in heaven. He is wholly other, but we're able to see him not as one who is aloof and wholly unrelatable, but we pray our Abba Father. That, that word in Aramaic is dripping with affection. You could translate it. It's not a one-to-one correlation, but the closest you can get to it is our daddy. And a better way to describe it is not necessarily the meaning of the word, but the mood of the word. So you have a four-year-old, and you know exactly as a father where to tickle her or him, and you're tickling him, and and you're wrestling on the ground, and she says or he says, Stop, daddy, stop, daddy, you're tickling me, you're tickling me. Our father, Abba. So the omniscient omnipresent, holy other God that is in heaven invites you to call him Daddy, Abba. He is holy other, but he is uniquely close to you. He is transcendent, but yet he is imminent. And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you miss this, you misunderstand the gospel. There's no other way to say it. That to understand this is to understand the very core and heartbeat of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It isn't that all of humanity are sons and daughters of the Most High God. All of humanity are created by God, created in the image of God. But to be called a son and a daughter of the Most High God is only true when you by faith have put your faith in the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in that saving relationship that you move from being one created in His image to one who is a son and daughter of the Most High God. So saying our Father is the original disciples, the followers of Jesus here, it is this invitation for us to reflect upon what has occurred in our life as Christians to be able to express that unique affection to say our Father who is in heaven. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that you have been adopted into his family. And adoption is this beautiful earthly illustration of this eternal reality. Adoption has been a a path that many of you in this room, your families have, have, have walked down that road. And a child who is adopted into a family, it isn't that the child 
takes the initiative and picks out the parents and goes and seeks them out. Oftentimes, that child who is adopted doesn't even know that he or she needs to be adopted. Not even cognizant of where they are in life. And even if they were, they don't have the ability. They don't have the initiative. They don't have the opportunity to go seek out the adoptive parents. So it takes the initiative of a father and a mother and the calling of God upon their life to go and seek out that child and to say, we are going to take you into our family. And it isn't at the point of adoption that that child instantaneously is granted in in this supernatural way all of your genetic background. No. It is a legal change. It is a status change. If you adopt a rambunctious two-year-old and you bring him home or bring her home, there's still going to be a two-year-old that is rambunctious. And it takes time for that nurture of your family to be able to connect to that child. But you're saying to that child, no matter what you do, we will treat you as our son, our daughter. And the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that every one of us in this room are sinners who are dead in our sin, alienated from him, a holy God. But God looked upon us and he took the initiative to send his son because he so loved the world. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to everlasting life. And so the great news of the gospel is, is that while we were yet still sinners, Christ came to make a way that we as sinful humans could call him a holy God, Abba Father. This is the beauty. The beauty isn't your pursuit. The beauty isn't your faith. The beauty isn't you were really ingenious in the way that you sought after God and you did your part and he did his part. You went halfway and he went halfway. No. You were dead in your sins. Enemies of the cross. But he looked upon us and he chose us in our sin and he came to us to reconcile us to him so we could call him Abba Father. Fourteen years ago or so, I was living in Mobile, Alabama. Danielle and I were. We were sojourning. It was probably the better description. For about a year, we lived in Mobile while we were rebuilding our post-Katrina life in the Mississippi Gulf Coast house that we were rebuilding after the storm and the church that we were rebuilding after the storm. So we lived, many of you are familiar with Mobile, we lived off of Schillinger Road and commuted back and forth for Danielle's work and the church that I was pastoring just because we were able to find it. We needed a place to live. We didn't have a place to live. So we found that real soon after. And this was a unique period in the life of our family because when Katrina hit, Danielle was about five months pregnant with our first child. So there was a lot of transition going on in life. We were going to bring in Hayden to this world, our first son. We were pastoring in the midst of the stress of that natural disaster. So I found a really godly Christian counselor in Mobile that was just really a life sin for me as a young father-to-be and pastor. This is the great thing about being a pastor when you're 23, 24 years old. You go to seminary and you get a master of divinity and you go to your first church and you don't have a clue what you're supposed to do. You know, it just, I mean, it's just like somebody help, help, help. I don't know what a business meaning, Robert's rules of order. What does that mean? You know, I mean, I, so all of those things that you're learning just in the immersion uh, by fire of being a pastor. Plus, I had a son that was going to be born. 
so great Christian counselor. I remember going to him and saying something to this effect. I am nervous about not knowing what I'm supposed to do as a dad to be. Like, what, what if you know, I say the wrong thing? What, what if I, I, in my best intentions, lose my temper? And, and, and what, what if I can't give to him what I need? What, 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 what if, what if, what if? And all the insecurity. All the inadequacy of, of becoming a father. D- didn't have this, I, I just didn't know what that was going to be like. And I, and I felt so inadequate in that moment. And I, I felt so anxious about the uncertainty. And I wanted to solidify. I want you to show me and to tell me seven things to do to raise a son, to love the Lord, and to become a missionary, and to marry this beautiful woman who loves the Lord too. And there's, just, there's no seven steps to that. But I wanted it. And so I went to this godly counselor, and he told me something to this. He didn't say, guess what? When when you have a baby, you're going to know exactly what you're supposed to do. And and you're going to be so adequate. You're going going to be the best. He didn't say any of that. He said, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? I said, well, yes. He said, you are going to be an an inadequate father. You are going to be an imperfect father. You are going to be a father who falls short. No parent is perfect. Anybody in this room? Next week is Mother's Day, so I wouldn't ask this question on Mother's Day, but (laughs) pre-Mother's Day question right here. But every, every parent raises their children with frailty and, and limitations, even, the, even in the best of our efforts. We're always doing something to our children that eventually a counselor 30 years down the road has got to work out, you know? And that's okay, because no one in this room raises their children in the Garden of Eden. But what he turned my eyes to wasn't my imperfections, but rather the perfection of my heavenly father, my Abba father. And what he said to me is, is, David, you have a heavenly father who is perfectly adequate, who desires to lead you and guide you. And in your insufficiencies, he is perfectly sufficient. In your inadequacies, he is perfectly adequate. So look not first and foremost to your weakness, but look to your weakness as an opportunity to glory in his perfection as a heavenly father who will never fail us, who has no frailty, who does not break promises or fall short in his heavenly duty. There are none of us in this room that get out of life without the shrapnel of the sinfulness of life. None of us do. And there can be a temptation to come to the Our Father of the Lord's Prayer and say, you know, I've got an earthly father. And there can be some real hurts. And I'm not here to diminish those hurts. 
Because some of you in this room have some real hurts and, and a stumbling block to get to this prayer has always been, really, do I, do I call him father when there's been an earthly father who has let me down? And I want you to hear in the midst of your hurt, in the midst of your difficulty, don't run away from your heavenly father, but run into the arms of the sufficiency of your heavenly father who perfectly loves you in the midst of your hurt and your past and your mistakes, who perfectly desires that you not perish, but you come to everlasting life, who would perfectly send his son, that if you would look to his son, that you would be called a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Are you adopted into his family? Has there been a time in your life where you've received this free familial gift of supernatural renovation and regeneration? Has there been a time in your life where you've turned from your sinfulness and you've turned to the sufficiency of your Savior? Have you bowed your knees and admitted that you're a sinner, believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ and committed your life to him? And if the answer to that is yes, then glory that you're able to say, our Father. And if you're here today and you say, I'm not really sure, I'm here to say his love wants to capture you this morning. He's knocking on your door. He doesn't want you to leave here without turning from yourself and basking in him as your savior. So if you are a Christian this morning, how much more can you hear that ultimately makes us realize how grateful we are called to be that we're able to call him Abba, Father. And if you're here today and you're not sure of that, may you today turn to him. May you today turn to him. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that you are sufficient. We thank you that today you are sufficient that you are perfectly adequate. There are none of us, none of us in this room who don't feel the frailty of our own humanity, the sinfulness. We're, we're all prone to wander. We're all prone to leave the God we first love. And, and so we come today confessing that to you and we come today looking to you, the altar and perfecter of our faith. I pray for the person today that is not a follower of Jesus Christ, that today you would call them, not from them, not, not to think, I've got to do better, I've got to be a better person, but to look from self to you and to cast themselves before you, trusting in your finished work. I pray for the person today who maybe has a past where, where difficulty has occurred and, and there have been some earthly relationships that were imperfect and, and maybe even hurtful in very real ways. I pray that we would look to you as the perfect expression of a, of a loving Heavenly Father. That we would look to you as the one who we can truly say our Father. And that you are good. You are our good, good Father. So we pray today that we would bask in gratitude for what you have done for us in and through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray.